Our guest is Donish Youssef. Mr. Youssef is CEO of Zensurance, a digital insurance broker for small businesses headquartered in Toronto. Donish Youssef, Happy New Year. Good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. Well, it's good to have you with us, and I suspect you are an optimistic sort of individual, and 2021 represents a whole new set of challenges for you. Absolutely. As an entrepreneur, we uh, we have to be optimistic because we're always facing an uphill battle. And now, so as hard as 2020 was, um, we, we are looking optimistically forward. Now, tell us a little bit about your company, Donish, because uh, Zensurance, uh, and this really dovetails nicely. You, by the way, you put out a piece on your website a few uh, weeks ago entitled Five Tips for an Effective and Sustainable Transition to a Remote Business. And we can kind of use that as a guideline uh, to talk about your business and the kinds of services you provide for other businesses. But tell us about Zensurance. How long have you been around? Absolutely. We've been around for just under five years, uh, and the focus is helping small business owners from coast to coast in Canada manage their insurance needs in a seamless, transparent, and trustworthy online manner. Um, so it's doing away with the, the old way of in-person paper, fax, check process uh, to just, you know, simply managing it online like everyone's used to doing everything else in their lives. Sure. And you've been, but you started right from the get-go. You've been an online business. Uh, now, you have a, an office and you have a staff of several dozen people, but your, prof- your profile and your presence is very much online, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. We are online first with, uh, with 110 people uh, in the office, well, remote these days, to support our clients. But it's really uh, go online first, manage what you want, and we allow the customers to pick the manner and the choice and the sorry, the manner and the the mode of interacting with us uh, of their choosing. Well, you know, it's uh, you you don't think about a lot of these categories, Donish, but as you look through the types of insurance coverage that your company offers, there's just a, a list that goes on and on, and everything from retail insurance, which you would know about, to uh, well, there's gym insurance and uh, pollution liability insurance and massage therapist insurance. Virtually every type of occupation or profession has a separate set of insurance coverage available to it doesn't it absolutely every business is unique and uh, what we do is ahead of time before we start uh, insuring say massage therapist we might spend 100 hours analyzing the industry different players out there different insurance companies we tailor an offering and then we sell it in bulk so we might spend 100 hours up front but every marginal policy issue only takes a few minutes and, and you also have the advantage of being a broker. So for a small business operator, and these days, Donish, and we'll talk about this at some length, but these days a lot of small business operators are totally preoccupied with maybe, maybe staying alive. So the, the notion of, of attending to details like insurance, which are not part of the function of the business, uh, sometimes these get overlooked, don't they? Absolutely. It's, um, even though I'm in the insurance business, I have to admit insurance uh, is even my own lowest priority. It took me quite a while to actually look at my own home and auto policy, even though I'm in insurance myself. And I know business owners are so busy managing their business on a good day. And like you said, trying to survive yeah. these days, insurance is just not their priority. And, and for us, more than half of our traffic comes after business hours maybe on the on the train ride home or sure. you know when they have a break at home after dinner because they're just too busy doing their own uh, running their own business during the day and we realize that and of course part of the part of the problem in terms of trying to find proper and appropriate insurance coverage for any person or any business is shopping around and if you're pre- preoccupied with staying alive in the shop uh, shopping for insurance is just almost a luxury so there you are the broker who can do all of that shopping for the client Absolutely. I am biased uh, as a broker, but I think the broker option is the best option. Um, it is our job to shop the market, find the best policy, not just up front, but every year. Uh, and if there's changes needed to be made mid-year, we're there too. These days, companies are, are pivoting their businesses. They used to be offline only, and now they're offline and online. Right. And it's quite possible that their insurance policy doesn't cover online sales. And so, have to make sure the policy keeps adapting to the way the business is changing. 
Now, that's something that hadn't even occurred to me, that if you were uh, modifying your business model, your retail outlet, for example, to, to accommodate the online demand, that you might have to have a special insurance component to cover that online activity, because I'll bet you your existing policy didn't even think about it. Absolutely. And, and what happens when you're selling online, you're not necessarily just saying selling, say, in Vancouver, your customer could be in Seattle, your customer could be in Mexico City. Sure. And many, many policies exclude non-Canadian revenue. Um, and so you have to make sure it adapts. And you may not have cybersecurity coverage, which is very important for any business, especially those with an online presence. So not only do you need to change the policy, you have to get more coverage. Let's talk a little bit. Uh, we'll talk, come back to cybersecurity in a couple of minutes, but it's the whole notion of just uh, what people have been struggling with. We've alluded to this a couple of times, and you have clients in all sectors of the economy, mostly small business people, but nonetheless representing all sorts of activity in the business community. Donish, what sort of difficulties have your clients expressed to you over the last few months? Uh, obviously, just the, the inability of people to go to brick and mortar shops you can't go to a store or in many cases in Ontario for example right now that's not possible is that is that the main impediment what have people been telling you I think first is um, what you already alluded to is just just staying alive um, revenue has stalled but costs have continued to pile on mm-hmm. uh, and so being able to tap uh, whatever source of capital you have and, and hoping that you make it to the other side. I think that that's absolutely the biggest thing. The second is just realizing what is business going to look like on the other side of, of whatever this is, you know, sure. it's, um, the next normal. Yeah, and it's, it's still it's, many months away too, right? Uh, absolutely. Um, and many months I think is optimistic. Personally, I think it's maybe a year away, mm. uh, but, but we'll see. I think, um, just the thought of what is it going to look like afterwards? Some things may go back to the way they were before. And I do think many things will not. Uh, for example, my own parents would never shop online. Now they do a lot of their shopping online. Mm-hmm. And they will continue to do the bulk of their shopping online even when things open up. So what does your business need to look like if these uh, customer behaviors persist over the long term? Uh, for example, if you're a laundromat and you're relying on people tailoring their formal dresses, their suits, their ties, but people are only going to be working in the office two days a week. Mm-hmm. Your revenue might be down 50%. What do you do? So this, this thinking of what's next is really preoccupying people. Um, and so it's, it's just really tough. And, and for those whose businesses essentially go away, uh, what do you do? Do, 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 you, do you retrain? Do you find a new occupation? Do you launch something else? There's so many of our customers and, and Friends of mine are in that situation trying to figure out what's next for them. Indeed. It's still uncertainty. You're saying a year. A lot of people I'm talking to, uh, Donish, are saying Labor Day as basically a target that they're hopeful to achieve in terms of vaccinating significant numbers of us so that we're approaching that herd immunity level. We're still going to have to wear masks and behave a little differently, but uh, I'm, I'm a little more optimistic about in terms of timeline. You're saying pretty much the whole year. I'm hopeful for Labor Day. Nobody knows, of course, but uh, we can we can all be hopeful. Joined on the line from Toronto by Donish Youssef, the CEO of Zensurance, a company that has been providing insurance coverage to Canadian clients online for five years. And Donish, you mentioned cybersecurity a few moments ago, and I'd like to dive into that because right there on your website, uh, you talk about uh, 43% of cyber attacks are aimed at small businesses. That's quite a high number. I would have thought that the most of the bad guys would have gone after the big chips and the big companies. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a surprising statistic. One of the reasons is the big guys, of course, they have uh, more valuable, more goods um, that are worth stealing, but they also have big teams protecting their uh, their systems. Okay, the sure. Smaller businesses have less protection. They're, they're not as savvy, and so they're easier hits. Uh, even if it gets twenty, thirty, forty thousand in sort of ransom, many of these attacks are ransom based. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can do it at scale. And so, are the bulk of the uh, cyber attacks on small businesses that you hear about through your client base? Are they demanding money? Is it all about ransom? Many of them these days are. 
Uh, some of them ask for Bitcoin ransom. Oh, yeah. Actually, uh, it's a anonymous way of getting money. But essentially, they'll lock down your system or steal confidential files and threaten to release them unless they get paid uh, some, some amount of ransom. Interesting stuff. And again, uh, when they come to you and, and indicate that they're just feeling a little vulnerable, what kind of, sort of recommendations do you make? Um, well, even before they get to that, we recommend they have some sort of an incident response plan in place, and we help them with that. Okay. Um, and so even before anything happens, you need to be aware of it. We talk about cybersecurity when they're sort of coming to us up front or every year when they're uh, renewing their policy. And then if there's any suspicion of, of something happening, uh, we immediately connect them to the insurance company. And, and the insurance companies that are the most advanced in cybersecurity actually treat it like a service on demand. If you feel like something's happening, they have a, have a team of people that immediately descend and try and figure out what's going on. They actually negotiate on your behalf. You can have uh, media, public relations support as well in case you're a larger company and, and everything's public. How do you manage your brand? Uh, they take over the negotiation and, and they basically take over everything. Um, and so it's really making sure that the right policy is in place for the right business based on the, the, the risk that that type of industry has. I want, to, I want to get a couple of minutes left and I want to go back to something that I mentioned to our listeners a while back on your website, zensurance.com, friends, that's the address. You have five tips for an effective and sustainable transition to a remote business. And you're pretty comfortable about posting this because your company's been named one of the 50 most innovative workplaces in Canada. So you're pretty comfortable and you've been online for five years. And, and most of your team, of course, has been working remotely now for many months. What are the biggest, what's the biggest issue in terms of trying to conduct business from a working from home environment? Absolutely. It's, it's been quite a challenge this year. We've essentially doubled headcount. We've added 60 people during the COVID lockdown. So we've managed to practice this quite a bit. Mm-hmm. We still don't have it right, but there's, there's, uh, there's some learnings that we have, which, uh, which result in that article. I think the first thing is realizing every employee has a unique situation. They might not have the perfect living situation. Maybe they have to go back to their parents' basement or you know, them and their partner together have to work in the house and there isn't enough space. Mm-hmm. So just recognizing that and then maybe somebody needs a chair. So we, we actually uh, took 50 Ubers and sent out chairs and desks and monitors to anyone that needed a, a better working situation at home. Uh, that's one. I think really over-communicating. You no longer have the luxury of turning around and talking to your neighbors. Right. It has to be pre-scheduled. Everyone's on Zoom calls all day. So we did things like virtual uh, workouts, virtual yoga for everybody a couple times a month. Uh, every Friday at 4.15, we stop work and do a town hall-style meeting. Uh, we use Slack, and we have an app in Slack called Donut. And that randomly pairs two people each week for you just to have a virtual copy chat. Oh, okay. I do a couple of those a month, a couple of those a week. And so just making sure everyone's still connecting, communicating, it's super important. Uh, We also have um, a mental health service for employees where they can call a confidential line, get support. It's been really challenging for people, just, you know, the isolation. So there's a number of things like that that we've put in place. Well, again, it sounds uh, very proactive, and I guess the fact that you were as um, internet-oriented from the beginning, years before this pandemic came upon us, you were really in a position to be a valuable uh, helper to a lot of people who were pretty overwhelmed very quickly by all of this. That's right. We were quite fortunate. Technologically, we were already ready. Um, I remember the, the Friday where we decided to go fully remote. We told everybody, take your laptop go home, start working from home. Everything we always did was virtual, be it phone calls, be it emails. Uh, everything was off of somebody's laptop so they could go home. It's more the, the personal touch, the, the sort of uh, the working environment that we had to work on afterwards. Indeed. Are you finding uh, some staff members really looking forward to getting back to the shop and others happy to stay right where they are? <laughs> You know, we did a survey of all of our staff, and, and not one person said they want to come back to the office five days a week. The most was three or four days a week. Okay. And some people said, I never want to come back. <laughs> <laughs> not surprising yeah. there at all. So you're going to have to work out some kind of hybrid arrangement eventually, aren't you? Absolutely. I, I think um, we it's going to remain hybrid a couple of days a week in the office, a couple of days um, from home, and all the tools we have will continue to support us.
Donish Youssef, thanks so much for doing this with us today. A very interesting conversation. We wish you considerable success going forward in 2021. And we commend your website, zensurance.com, to our Vancouver listeners. We'll talk again, Donish. Thanks for this. And Happy New Year. To you as well. Thanks for having me. There's Donish Youssef in Toronto, the CEO of Zensurance. Canada-China relations is a subject we have spent a great deal of time on on this program and doubtless will going forward as well in 2021 as the situation continues to unfold when we begin to realize to a greater extent the plan afoot by the people's the government of the People's Republic of China. It's a real pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. We've never met, and it's about time. Charles Burton is a senior fellow with the MacDonald Laurier Institute. He is a professor of political science at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. He has twice been a counselor at our Canadian embassy in Beijing. He is also a former employee of the Department of National Defense's Communications Security Establishment. He is a Canada-China relations specialist. Professor Burton, Charles, good morning, happy new year, and welcome. Good morning, Sterling. Very nice to meet you at last. Well, it's about time, sir, and it's a pleasure to meet you. Uh, an article written by a couple of your colleagues for the Macdonald Laurier Institute uh, came to our attention a couple of days, mostly because I like the, t- the title so much. If Australia can shun China... Canada should, too. This is a sentiment that survey after survey in the past six months, Charles, has suggested 80% of Canadians of all political stripes are on side on this matter of Canada's evident weakness in dealing with China. Well, I think the question really is, why is our government not with that 80%? You know, what is it that causes Canada to um, abandon our, our Canadian values, our, our commitment to persons who are being harassed and menaced by agents of the Chinese state, our commitment to the international rules-based order and diplomacy and trade, by making absolutely no substantive um, response to the Chinese regime's hostage diplomacy of Kovrigan's favor and and their completely unjustified um, abrogation of of Canadian agricultural um, commodity import contracts, mm-hmm. you know, to all these things, where Australia has been doing the right thing, has been saying to the Chinese regime, we want a proper explanation of the source of COVID-19. We want, uh, we want the officials who are complicit in genocide in northwest China against the Turkic Muslims to be made accountable for that. We want you to uphold the uh, Hong Kong uh, agreement with regard to maintaining the freedoms for 50 years. And uh, we are prepared to to retaliate against you if you don't uh, get into compliance with your commitments to the international rules-based order. The interesting thing about this is that, you know, Australia pays a considerable cost. They've lost already $20 billion worth of exports because of Chinese um, retaliation over their dissatisfaction with what Australia has been doing to try and and um, assert bring themselves back to rights. Yeah, and yeah. We only have four percent of our external trade going to China. So how come we are the ones who are not responding? whereas our cousin Australia are doing the right thing. And this is the question. Again, we're back to that 80% number. A lot of Canadians asking precisely the same questions, Professor Burton. I have a couple of theories that are being uh, circulated widely in terms of justifying the weakness of the Canadian response so far. Here's number one. And this goes back to the early days of Pierre Trudeau uh, breaking down the, the, the bamboo curtain and opening up China to Canada or vice versa versa. And in the process of those early days, uh, the the liberals and their friends established some pretty solid business connections. And those connections have made a lot of people a lot of money, many of whom are still very much a part of the establishment and have absolutely no interest whatsoever in upsetting the apple cart. Theory number two, Charles, has to do with very nervous Canadian manufacturers who are really uh, very antsy about their supply line, which extends to and from China being interrupted or indeed cut off. Which of those two theories makes any sense to you at all? 
Well, I think both make sense. I mean, you know, the context of Canada cozying up to these uh, uh, dictators like Mao, Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai and Castro was that we needed to diversify away from our dependence on the United States. Right. You know, Trudeau also did the Foreign Investment Review Agency. Trudeau also tried to limit, through the Canadian Radio Television Commission, um, U.S. Um, broadcasts into Canada. So, you know, he saw China as an alternative. Um, and then, as you say, these liberal associated companies, large Quebec companies, became quite complicit in um, uh relationships, lucrative relationships Indeed. with Chinese communist business networks. And now we have the situation where we know that if Canada does not comply with China in terms of its political demands, including, you know, not cracking down on, on their influence operations on senior policymakers or or not cracking down on their cyber espionage where they purloin, you know, so much of our technologies, that that they will engage in economic coercion. And that's you know, that's where they've got us. And we don't seem to have the courage to recognize that we got ourselves into this bad situation. And the only way to get out of it is to stand up to China and take the consequences. Indeed. And and as far as the, the nervous Nellies are concerned about their supply lines in terms of their manufacturing commitments here in Canada, in the article written by your colleagues at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, one line literally jumped off the page and bit me on the eye. It, it reads very quickly, China needs Canadian goods more than Canada needs Chinese goods. Flesh that one out for us, Charles, please. Well, you know, it's a three-to-one trade imbalance because China imposes so many non-tariff barriers on Canadian access to the Chinese market. Um, And examples over and over again of the Chinese state um, obtaining Canadian proprietary manufacturing processes and IP or, you know, squeezing out the Canadian partner through imposition of arbitrary taxes and regulations that um, you know, Chinese can function very well in our in our environment based on rule of law and clear and transparent business regulations. Right. Canadian companies can't do the same in China. Therefore, they get the three to one advantage. And so, if there was an equal, even Stephen reciprocal, fair imposition of uh, retaliatory measures, they would lose a lot more than we would. It was interesting that in the uh, in the article they talk about the the dependence on uh, by uh, of Canadians on some Chinese providers, and then they look to uh, and point to, for example, Japan, who was dependent on China for uh, many of its supply line and supply chain ingredients, if you will, for that monstrous manufacturing machine that is Japan. And they pivoted about ten years ago away from China and found other supply. Vietnam now being one of their big ones. So it is possible. Uh, it's just inconvenient, perhaps, Charles. That's another uh, impediment to getting things moving. Yeah, I think so. I mean, clearly, from a national security point of view, if you deal with Chinese enterprises, you're dealing with the whole regime and their geostrategic strategy. Yep. And so, you know, our commodity exports to China are largely agricultural commodities for which there is a global market. And so if we're not going to sell into the People's Republic of China, you know, our soybeans and and canola seeds and so on are marketable elsewhere. Yes. And so I think from that point of view, you know, we we really have to look at it in terms of can we uh, deal with that country in trade without unacceptable other consequences? And if the answer is no, then I think we have to, to start getting serious about diversifying into other dependencies. But as I say, it's only 4% of our external trade. So this shouldn't be such a a challenging thing. It's just, as you point out, those vested interests in Canada who have been co-opted by the Chinese regime are very hard to dislodge from the center of our Canadian federal power. It's it's surprising that it's such a low number, Charles, because I think most Canadians, the average Canadian, would be very surprised to find out that we don't do more business with China than the 4% that you're talking about right now, I think. And it's interesting also that you would talk about Pierre Trudeau uh, going to China and Cuba and other places around the world in order to open our eyes and our doors uh, uh, against our dependence on the United States. And here we are, low 
these many years later with another Trudeau, and uh, we're uh, in a situation where we're looking at our dependence with China, the the country we went to to get away from our dependence on the United States. How about that circle? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the thing is that when you deal with the United States, they don't arbitrarily arrest your citizens and subject them to prison hell as a means to get you, you know, to get their way. And obviously, the United States is our best friend in the world, and that we should uh, recognize that and get together with the United States and like-minded other democracies to come up with some common principles to make it clear to the Chinese regime that they cannot go on like this and have to get into compliance with the fair and reciprocal arrangements of the international order. And, you know, I think that's going to come under President Biden. I'm not sure that we'll get Canadian collaboration under this government, but maybe a future government of another party that is more responsive to what Canadians want will uh, we'll make that happen. Excellent guest joining us from Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. Uh, our guest is Charles Burton. Mr. Burton has been uh, a, a storied career, Charles. My goodness, a Canada-China relations specialist with two two stints as a counselor at the Canadian Embassy in Beijing. So you know how they do business over there. And what I want to talk to you about for a few minutes is how they're doing business over here in the most insidious of ways. Not the above board trying to buy mines in the Northwest Territories or whatever that uh, adventure turned into, but the kind of uh, of subversive activities that are going. We talked to people uh, on this program a fair bit throughout 2020 about the efforts of the Chinese government to influence the governments from municipal to provincial to federal in Canada. It's really pervasive. It's scary stuff. And I think, again, we have to look at Australia and see their Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Act, which requires that policymakers and former policymakers should be um, revealing any sources of benefit from foreign sources, and of course, primarily from China. The Chinese government's extremely unhappy with us, really, about this. And within Canada, if you look at the website of Senator Yuan Pao Wu, former head of the Asia Pacific Foundation there in Vancouver, he has a, a long statement of a meeting where he opposes um, Canada moving into this form of legislation, claiming that, you know, things going on in Australia are not going on in Canada, or uh, just I'm generally subsidize, um, summarizing, or claiming that our, 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 our security agencies are all already fully on top of the situation. But the bottom line is that when that legislation went into effect in Australia in 2018, People started to resign from China-related boards, most notably the Australian former Minister of International Trade who had negotiated a free trade agreement with China, who they found out was in receipt of an $880,000 a year private consultancy uh-huh. from a Chinese source. Mm-hmm. So my feeling is, if it's going on in Australia, it's probably going on in Canada at an even greater rate, and sunshine is the best disinfectant. And why would anyone oppose such legislation if they don't have anything to worry about? Well, there's no no shortage of evidence. For example, anytime there's a public protest in Vancouver, where there's a huge Chinese population, whenever there's a protest against Beijing, whatever the cause may be, there typically is also, Charles, a counter-protest of pro-China, pro-Beijing supporters who show up and get their pictures on Beijing TV, and the bad guys are the protesters, and that's the way we are continued, continuing to be seen by Chinese people in China. Yeah, I think that, you know, there is a, a lot of problematic aspects to this. For one thing, you know, a lot of those protesters are um, students from the People's Republic of China who are being organized by the Chinese Students and Scholars Association at the different universities. You know, they have them at UBC and Simon Fraser, of course. And they are being mobilized by the Chinese embassy. We've, we've seen, you know, a number of, of, of leaked documents to this effect. Mm-hmm. And under our Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, you know, even if you're not a Canadian citizen, you still enjoy the benefits of the Charter and therefore should not be coerced into political participation that, uh, you know, by, by agents of a foreign state here in Canada. Right. But the problem is for those students... If they don't fully collaborate, it goes into their file, it affects their families back in China, it affects their career prospects. So, you know, if the Chinese embassy says get out there and do a counter-protest, 
they're all going to go. And, and you, you, you almost can't blame them because they're in an awkward situation where they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. Exactly. But we should be protecting them by declaring persona non grata, those Chinese diplomats who are in, you know, engaged in this sort of activity of influence and harassment operations. It's just completely unacceptable in Canada. But our government has not done anything about it. We haven't we haven't expelled a single Chinese diplomat, even though there are a lot more Chinese diplomats accredited to Canada than uh, diplomats from the United States of America. So the question is, what are those diplomats doing? Do they operate less efficiently than diplomats from other countries, or are they involved in this united front work where they're engaged in activities which are not consistent with their diplomatic status. So where do Canadians go, Charles, given the absence of backbone, for lack of a better word, on the part of our government? Where do we go to learn the real deal about what's going on, what China is trying to do to Canada? They want us as a vassal state that can supply endless natural resources and not give give them any grief in return. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's the Chinese uh, Communist Party General Secretary, Xi Jinping, who's also the president of China, has his notion of the community of the common destiny of mankind, which is a new Chinese-dominated global order based on his assumption that the United States as a global superpower is in decline. Mm -hmm. And this will replace, you know, our existing post-war liberal institutions like the UN and the WTO. And that's the plan. And, it, you know, it's not a secret plan. He, he, he articulates this in the Chinese language on many occasions. So, you know, that's what we're facing. It's, it's really, it's completely, uh, it's completely open. It's just that uh, our politicians refuse to see it. How about the Biden administration uh, with respect to the these goals, this world domination map that uh, Xi Jinping has? Uh, would the Biden administration represent more of a counterbalance to that? Well, uh, Mr. Biden, in an article that he wrote in, in the U.S. Journal of Foreign Affairs, said that his number one foreign affairs priority would be to establish an alliance of democracies to enforce the norms of the international rules-based order. That's really about, you know, doing something about China. I think Biden recognizes the United States is only 25% of the global economy. He needs to get the rest of us in Europe and in, and in countries like Canada, you know, on board to, to come up with a common front, or China will simply continue its policies of divide and rule. So, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's their program of trying to replace the global order with a Chinese-oriented one, and also their economic program of the Belt and Road Initiative, where they reorient the global economy entirely towards China at the center. All the belts and roads in the Belt and Road Initiative end up in China, needless to say. Indeed, yes. Yeah. So about 30 seconds here, Charles. Unfortunately, do you think some kind of balance, a mutual standoff of some kind can be achieved during the Biden years ahead? I think that, um, you know, if we're able to give the Chinese regime an incentive to stop doing these these uh, horrendous uh, things they've been doing globally, that maybe that will stimulate um, political change inside China and we'll get a China that, you know, we can all work with to the common benefit of all. That's that's what I hope for. If If that doesn't happen, God help us all. Indeed. Well, we do uh, enter the brand new year full of hope, don't we? At least we we get credit for that. Charles Burton, thank you so much for doing this today. Excellent to meet you, sir. We will definitely talk again. Good to speak. Take care. Charles Burton joining us from Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. Joined on the line by Bob Chamberlain from the Wild Salmon Alliance to talk about a decision by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans taken a couple of weeks ago to renew the license of some fish farms near Campbell River's Discovery Islands group. Uh, but the, the renewal uh, is essentially allowing the fish farms to grow out existing stock and then close. There will be no new smolts added to the farms which are in a, a migratory pattern uh, of, of wild salmon roots. Bob Chamberlain from the Wild Salmon Alliance is back with us this morning, joining us from North Vancouver. Bob, good morning. Welcome back and Happy New Year. 
Hey, good morning, Sterling, and very same to you. Well, thank you. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your reaction, the, the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance a reaction to the decision by Bernadette Jordan, the minister, to uh, renew those licenses on a very limited basis, basically signaling the closure of those farms in 18 months. Well, the First Nation Wild Salmon Alliance is very pleased with this announcement and decision that Minister Jordan has made. Uh, many of the members of the Wild Salmon Alliance are from the Fraser River, uh, whose uh, salmon they depend on and are being affected by these fish farms. So to know that the, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans has uh, made a very clear decision to put wild salmon first is very welcome. Let's talk a little bit about the kind of year that it's been, uh, that was 2020, uh, given that it's finally behind us, Bob. It's a little early for final statistics, but what can you tell us about salmon runs last year? Well, on the Fraser, we had historic low salmon returns, period, where we're on the verge of extinction. Because when you look at the outmigration of very minimal juvenile salmon, every one of them needs to get to the ocean to return. Sure. And of course, if we don't do something substantial right now, we're going to be facing the very same thing that occurred with the cod stocks out in the east coast of Canada. Mm-hmm. Well, and of course, we do recall that, uh, now I think this goes back to the Mulroney years, but this was the same Department of Fisheries and Oceans, Bob, that did actually, in quotes, manage the cod stocks out of existence. Exactly. And what they did is they, I mean, this is a slightly different scenario given the harvest method is one was commercial, one is fish farm. Sure. But the thing is, the department has not demonstrated that they've learned to not tailor science. And what I mean by that is when you examine like the, the nine science papers that were identified to uh, show that these fish farms were less than minimal harm, the devil's in the details. You look at the Canadian Scientific Advisory Secretariat, CSAS process, that's horribly flawed where industry is represented in every component, including the terms of reference, which is the focus of the work, the summary of the science, and the evaluation. And I fail to see how this is not a conflict of interest and how DFO continues to stand on such outcomes. Well, let's talk a little bit about the reaction that's happening on Vancouver Island. Uh, you know, the local economy is to some extent dependent on the activity from some from aquaculture, period. And this group of fish farms uh, near Campbell River, as you've informed us before, Bob, in the Discovery Islands, uh, they say represents on the island about 1,500 jobs and, uh, the, and, and puts some element of risk into the provincial aquaculture industry, which is worth over a billion and a half a year and uh, mayors in Campbell River, Port Hardy, Port McNeil and Gold River uh, have written a collective letter to the minister going, well, we weren't really sort of looped in on all of this. And all of a sudden you kind of pulled the rug out from under us. The minister is promising a follow up. But what do you make of that uh, apparent surprise reaction? Well, I don't I'm a bit uh, taken aback by their surprise as uh, I look at it this way industry knew from the very moment that they had that license that it was going to be up for renewal or non-renewal on this date. And so if the industry has decided to not look after its employees by having a contingency plan for every outcome, that is not the problem of government. That is a problem of industry and their foresight. And the thing is, when I think about these mayors, uh, I I would want to remind them that the Union of BC Municipalities passed a resolution in 2018 calling for land-based closed containment and removal of fish farms from the ocean. Right. So either they're just simply not paying attention or they're misdirecting their focus. And I had a chat with uh, Chief Darren Blaney, and it was really difficult. I can't remember exactly which mayor it was, but the statement was quite racist and very troubling, where he stated, you people get everything. And to me, that just shows the path that's needed for reconciliation and a true understanding of the laws of this country for First Nations people. Bob, when we talked to the minister, Bernadette Jordan told us that the government's plan is to phase out all open net pen fishing, fish farming in B.C. by 2025. That was her goal. She said so right on this on this program. So this first small step to uh, close the fish farms at 18 months off Discovery Islands. Is this the beginning of a pattern? Are you aware of a series of closures that will take place between now and 2025? Or is this it until 2025? 
Uh, I'm not aware of any other planned closures, though I am mindful of the provincial policy for fish farm tenures coming up in 2022, that if a company doesn't have a working agreement with fish farm, uh, First Nations, whose territory they operate in, they will not get a tenure. But the thing is, this they're talking. Canada is talking to the wrong people. They need to be talking to the companies that are actually accomplishing land-based closed containment instead of ones that are just saying, no, it's impossible, we can't do it. Well, if they can't do it, then Canada needs to engage with the companies that are actually accomplishing this around the world. And it's the hottest sector in the aquaculture industry around the world except for the fish farm companies in British Columbia. Well, I was just going to say, are there any uh, working examples of on-land fish farms uh, here in Canada, especially here in, on, on, the, on the West Coast? Well, the Numbagees First Nation have Katera, which is up in their territory by the Nimkish River. But to be mindful, that was uh, a demonstration project, if you like, to be able to show that you can grow a product. And they've demonstrated that. But we see down in Florida, we see in Denmark, we see in Maine, there are places, in, including Dubai, and uh, I've read recently about uh, in Nevada. So if they're able to do land-based closed containment in locations such as that, why not British Columbia? Well, I think... If, if, I could, if I could, we've had the fish farm people on, on the program, too. But we, we followed this file for quite a while. In fact, in our next half hour, we're going to talk about open ocean fishing uh, with the, the CEO of Organic Oceans. Dane Schauble is going to join us in our next half hour, and we're going to keep this up. But uh, back to the, uh, the, the decision here uh, with open uh, land-based fish farms, the argument advanced by the fish farming representative who spoke with us was simply economic. I mean, yes, yes, we can do it. Uh, it can be done, but the expense is, is considerable, and uh, we would rather not spend the money. He didn't say that, but that was the impression that was left. Well, they don't want to spend the money because they're enjoying not having to be responsible for all aspects of their operations, which includes impacts to the environments and wild salmon and the, the utter discharge of every aspect of their waste into the environment. So they're want, not wanting to be a responsible corporate citizen. Whereas now, if you go to land-based closed containment, which is occurring everywhere else around the world except here, then they would be able to be more responsible, more sustainable product that's not risking wild salmon, which this province was built upon. And let's, let's remind everyone, Bob, we've only got a minute left, why this particular group of fish farms off Campbell River, uh, why it's been so important to have them closed, even though 18 months is going to take that long. No new smolts this year. They're going to grow out what's there and then close it. Why? Well, it's a very key out-migration for the Fraser River sockeye and other fish and other mainland rivers. And so the, the department has avoided commenting or including examination of sea lice. No surprise, last year 99% of what was sampled of juveniles were infected with lethal loads of sea lice. Broughton Archipelago, the only place that didn't have that kind of lice load. And so when you have regulations that are completely untethered from what they're intended to protect, it's an absolutely senseless regulation. Bob Chamberlain, thanks for this. Uh, we appreciate you coming back and help clarify the, the matter. We, we'll talk lots more in, in, as the year unfolds. Thanks for getting Thank up this much. morning and joining us. Okay, bye-bye. We talked a little about salmon farming a few moments ago. We're going to stay on the fish file. This is something we followed a, a lot on this program in 2020. And, in fact, we're welcoming guests, back one of our 2020 guests. Dane Shovel is with us this morning. Mr. Shovel is CEO of Organic Ocean, uh, based in Richmond, B.C. Dane, good morning. Happy New Year. Welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Best fishes for 2021. <laughs> that, and I wanted to say congratulations, by the way, for 2020, because your company, Organic Ocean, made the, uh, the list of the top 25 North American seafood suppliers for sustainability and conservation from the folks at Seafood Source. And that's a nice feather in your cap. Way to go. Yeah, thank you very much. We're very pleased to uh, receive that award. Let's talk a little bit about what that means and how Organic Oceans goes about doing business before we talk about the kind of fishing year you've had because you fish for so many different species. But let's talk about how you organized your company and why it's a little different. Well, uh, 10 months ago, we we could see the tsunami of uh, COVID-19 coming our way because we were selling seafood to chefs across the country into the U.S. and into Southeast Asia. And uh, 
our Southeast Asia business had dried up. So uh, we uh, were preparing for a storm, as fishermen do, tried to figure out what our next move would be and determined that uh, the seafood supply chain would need to continue to flow, but it might have to flow differently. And instead of uh, supplying restaurants, we created a direct-to-consumer home delivery model, and uh, that's uh, kept us afloat over the year. And in fact, it's proving to be the the growth engine of our business going forward. And who would have suspected that all that work that you do out on the water ends up being, for the most part, dealt with online, Dane? Well, you know, I think it's one of the things that the coronavirus has done to the economy in general, and fisheries and seafood is no... uh, no exception is that uh, we've seen a, a digitization of our business. We're conducting our meetings uh, on Zoom and sure. Microsoft Teams, and uh, people are buying online, and uh, it's it's certainly the future. And I don't think it's something that's with us just for uh, the uh, pandemic. I think the convenience is uh, proving that it's here to stay. Yeah, I think, uh, and we're going to talk more about that, in fact, in our next half hour with the permanent changes that COVID has caused technologically uh, throughout many sectors of the economy. Uh, Last time you and I talked on the radio, Dane, you were home in Richmond, but you had just returned from fishing up off Rupert, up near Alaska. So you fished the entire West Coast all season long. Uh, How was 2020? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. It's, it, I think it's easy to dwell on the negative, but I think for fisheries and seafood, we're so accustomed to the negative that uh, it was that that was no different from virtually any other year. And in fact, uh, I think that there were a lot of positives that uh, um, fell out of uh, 2020 in an ironic kind of way. As I told you, we've pivoted uh, our business. We're still there for the restaurants, and we're enthusiastically looking for the vaccine to bring that business back on on stream. Mm-hmm. But um, one of the things that we saw is that uh, with the lockdown, people began doing things like baking sourdough bread at home, but they also began uh, other experimentation at home cooks. And one of the things that had freaked them out previously was the weirdness of seafood. They were comfortable eating it in a restaurant, but sure. not so at home. But uh, over the course of the last year, seafood has become a, a really, uh, I think, exciting and attractive home ingredient, and uh, it's in part due to its healthiness, its nutritiousness, its tastiness, but uh, its immune-boosting qualities, too. So uh, I think that, you know, the the pundits are saying that uh, it's not only been a shot in the arm for seafood in 2020, but um, it's going, it it promises to be a big deal in 2021 for us. So I, I think people in the seafood industry and the fisheries are optimistic about the outlook. And there's a lot to be said, too, Dane, for people, your marketplace, at least your domestic marketplace, having, if, all, if, if anything, almost too much time on their hands to discover, to experiment, to uh, explore areas of, of food and, and uh, 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 other such that they'd never tried before. Uh, I, I'd never eaten seafood in my life until I moved from Ontario and back east here to the West Coast. And now I eat almost everything. Almost everything. Uh, and and so that, I think, has happened this year. A lot of people have had a little extra time. And, well, let's try this. We, I've never tried that. But let's give that a shot. And that's what's happened. Well, and, and one of the really cool things for us is that when our, when our chefs' businesses uh, went into hibernation, they stepped up and uh, they began helping us out, informing and, and, and educating uh, home cooks on how to uh, cook seafood. And I think what people like you found is that it's really not that uh, complex and right. that uh, within a short order they were creating amazing dishes and uh, um, that they never thought they would be capable of so um, uh, it's it's really worked out uh, incredibly well and, and it happened at a great time because our fisheries access to uh, export and international markets uh, were impacted by the the pandemic a lot sure. of seafood that would have flowed into uh, markets like China uh, didn't and so having this resurgence or this uh, surge in demand and in, in domestic uh, consumption of seafood has been a great thing and it it bodes well for what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, you talked about uh, your South Asian markets uh, drying up early in the pandemic, as uh, everyone who produces anything discovered early in the pandemic. We're not selling anything. Have some of those markets come back, or are they starting to come back yet, Dane, or still pretty much where they were six months ago? They're coming back, but, uh, uh, you know, you, you, you see in the news that uh, just when you think things are under control in places like South Korea, then there's a, a little outbreak and uh, it's, it's a, a bit of a relapse. So 
Um, it's not it's not a, a, a big rebound yet, but uh, I think that uh, um, there's light at the end of that tunnel. How do you this sell in North America? Yeah, how do you sell your products overseas? I mean, there's there's such a, co- a com- competition. So, you, the individual producer, do you use an agent or a broker to get the attention of potential buyers? How does that work? How do you get your your nose in the picture, so to speak? Well, we and I think this is true of uh, um, most. The BC seafood exporters uh, um, have benefited from uh, the support of both the federal and the provincial government's uh, foreign trade offices. They do a really good job of uh, supporting and boosting and providing introduction uh, of their seafood companies uh, overseas. Um, we've also had the had the added benefit of uh, for the last ten plus years, we've been supplying the top chefs in the land, and they move around, and they've also got a real viral network. Pardon me. The, the the term um, mm-hmm. and so and so what they do is uh, they've uh, been spreading the word for us so well we're, we've been dealing with Michelin starred chefs in in places like Singapore that uh, have heard about our seafood from uh, chefs in places like Toronto and Montreal and, and and one of the things that you know I don't know if this is a little known fact or not but British Columbia produces some of the best seafood on the planet and I attribute that to the fact that it's cold water seafood. It's also not really high volume production, so there's a real focus on on quality here. So um, we're world class seafood producers here. We are world class seafood producers. There's no question about it. And, and I guess the idea is and has been for the fisheries here in British Columbia is is to get the world to notice. And it appears that is becoming more and more of a reality, Dane. Oh, it, it sure is. I mean, you know, I, I think that this is the tip of the iceberg. Uh, you know, as we make inroads into markets like uh, Singapore or Macau or Hong Kong, uh, the word spreads there just as it did for us in, in Canada. So I know it's been good for our business, and we're not alone. We're just we're, we're one of uh, several seafood companies that uh, are benefiting from the reputation of BC-produced seafood abroad. Our guest uh, this half hour is Dane Shovel, the CEO of Organic Oceans. And last summer, after an appearance with us on the program, Dane was kind enough to invite Andrew and Julie and me out uh, for a spot prawn fishing day with Captain Steve Johansson and his fine crew, which that day, Dane, included your son. Uh, Andrew wasn't able to make it. My wife, Carol, joined us in his place. And it was an absolutely fantastic experience, uh, one that I wish more British Columbians who enjoy the seafood that we that you produce for us could have a chance to see up close and personal and if nothing else to appreciate dane the amount of work involved in in getting that stuff to market well and and one of the other things that i i hope that you um, witness when you're out there is that it's a very sustainable fishery and as uh, all of our fisheries are and that's one of the factors that contributes to the popularity of our seafood both domestically and, and abroad canada is a world leader in terms of fishing in an environmentally friendly fashion and encouraging such practices. So, uh, um, and the spot prawn fishery has been the poster child of, uh, of, you know, sustainable fisheries. Indeed. Uh, you, you fish for such a wide variety at, at Organic Oceans. You offer to the customer at OrganicOceans.com, Dane, virtually uh, uh, every type of seafood imaginable here on, on the West Coast. How many boats do you have and why are you so so diverse given the fact that fishing each of these species costs a lot of money and a separate license? Yeah, well, and and we're a drop in the bucket. We're we're one of we're one of several, one of many. Our our niche has tended to be the uh, high end, um, premium, sustainably harvested uh, uh, seafood. And and that's not to say that the other the other seafood uh, supply chain players are are not uh, um, quality or sustainability oriented. But there is a lot of seafood that is produced in British Columbia. And it's one of again one of the things that fell out of the uh, pandemic this past year is that uh, we were very uh, uh, early on named as an essential service. And, and I think it's provided the general public and the government uh, an appreciation of uh, the role we play in terms of providing uh, uh, domestic food security and uh, uh, what a good food production system it is. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. And I think it's a lot bigger deal than many uh, 
uh, appreciate. Well, again, in terms of appreciation, had a had a good chat with Captain Steve, who's a terrific guy, and talked about you know the cost of licenses just for one species, and you and you fish for several. So again, this is this is something not to be taken lightly. It, just to get in the game, it costs an enormous amount of money, and it's still a gamble because you're you're not sure what you're going to catch. No, and 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 that's why. Uh, when when uh, you know we faced the coronavirus storm this past year, it was kind of uh, yeah a bit of water off off the back. We're we're accustomed to uh, dealing with adversity. Uh, we've become incredibly resilient, and uh, we always live to see another day. And we're also hopeless optimists, so um, that's what keeps us hanging in. But you know, I was uh, featured in a BC Salmon Marketing Council video, and at the end of it. Uh, I said, yeah, I do this job for free. And the uh, guy that produced the video said, you want to keep that in? I said, yeah, absolutely. I said, because, you know, it's largely true. It's a, it's a, an incredible lifestyle. You experienced one day of it, but uh, if you do it for a living, it's it's an amazing way to uh, uh, lead your life and make a living. Yeah, it didn't take very long to uh, see how a person can be drawn to that particular lifestyle. It is certainly very physical. It's a very, very uh, active uh, job. It's uh, nobody's sitting there pressing buttons. <laughs> There's a lot of a lot of slugging that goes on, a lot of hefting and literally heavy lifting. But again, the satisfaction that comes uh, from uh, particularly fishing in the style and the manner that you have chosen to at Organic Oceans with sustainability being uh, paramount in in every situation yeah and it's 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 a healthy lifestyle and i think it's a very socially responsible uh lifestyle uh I, you know i think it's been feeding and uh, supporting uh coastal and indigenous communities uh you know for, for as long as it's existed on on our coast and i think it uh, you know provides pretty integral uh, uh function in our in our provincial and uh, domestic economy. Yeah, Dave, when I first moved here back in the mid-70s, the three pillars of the B.C. economy in those days were forestry, fishing, and mining. I don't think those three pillars are holding up the economy today as they were quite quite a number of years ago now. But where exactly is the fishery in terms of importance, in terms of contribution still to the B.C. economy? Yeah, you know, I, I think it, I think it has gone through a slump over the course of the last uh, um, you know, thirty or forty years. Where you're, you're absolutely right, uh, like in forestry and mining, and it, you know, it was it was a preeminent uh, industry. BC's uh, uh, been known as hewers of wood and drawers of water. But right. It's it's also coming back uh, in a big way, not just in terms of uh, you know the management and I think the the production of the fisheries, but also the importance of food. And, uh, you know, I, I, again, I, that, that, that was driven home uh, recently when you had a, a health issue. And the last thing you wanted to do was compound it with a food shortage. Sure. And, and, and people are beginning to realize that food isn't uh, manufactured in factories. It's grown on farms and produced in the ocean. And, and the, you know, I think that that's a good thing. I think fishermen are beginning to get, uh, you know, some of the respect or uh, appreciation that uh, that they deserve, and uh, we're also finding that the federal government, I think, has taken uh, an increased interest in fisheries, both in terms of supporting the viability of our fisheries, and certainly from an environmental and conservation perspective. And uh, that's that's overdue and much needed. One of the buzzline questions we've been asking our listeners this morning since six a.m., Mister Shovel, is: Are you optimistic for twenty twenty one? What's what's your take on this? Yeah, I, I, I really am, and uh, you know, you perhaps you got to take my comments with a bit of a grain of salt because uh, I'm a, a cup half full kind of guy. But uh, uh, I think the vaccine promises to bring things back to uh, normal. I think uh, restaurants will be op- will will reopen. I think we'll see recovery in the food service sector, um, and I expect strong seafood performance in in the coming year. People have proven that they're buying it, and they're buying it more frequently, and. Uh, um, it's in, it, you know they have an increased seafood IQ. So uh, um, if we weather twenty twenty, uh, we're in good shape for twenty twenty one. Indeed, and it doesn't ha- hurt at all, uh, as you've identified already in this conversation once, and it bears repeating because uh, not everyone may even did be aware of it. Dean, the there is a quality in fresh BC seafood that actually is immune system enhancing. It's good for you. 
Well, yeah, it's, you know, because of things like omega-3s and, uh, um, you know, the uh, healthy protein thing, uh, it's it's a real key element of the healthy planet, healthy diet movement. And uh, what, what we've noticed is that in terms of our market, um, it's over 55s that, uh, you know, guys like you and I that are getting increasingly health conscious as we uh, near the end of our lives, and it's also uh, um, the millennials who uh, are really focused on their health and um, are uh, directing their attention increasingly at seafood, what? and and that's a great that's a great uh, um, change in terms of uh, uh, development of a market for us. Well, indeed, and and the fact that you have virtually the endorsement of the entire medical community just doesn't hurt the product at all, now does it? Uh, lots of options available for consumers. This is the pivoting that they've done at Organic Ocean, friends. Go to the website, OrganicOcean.com, and check out the seafood combinations that you can have delivered to your home. Dane Schauble to you and Steve Johansson and all the gang at Organic Oceans. Our thanks again for a wonderful little detour last summer and our very best wishes for a successful 2021 to you all. Well, thanks, Sterling. And and the crew has asked me to... uh ensure that we book a day for you and Carol again this year. They thought you were terrific and they want you back. Oh, well, okay. Well, Julie's going, me too? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course. All right, Dane Shavel, thanks very much. We'll see you on the water sometime then, huh? Have a happy 2021. See you in May. You betcha. Dane Shavel, the CEO of Organic Ocean. Check him out. OrganicOcean.com.